We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Please turn your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I've titled our Bible study this morning, What's the Big Deal? What's the Big Deal? And uh, if you've been with us on Sunday evenings or listening to the messages, you know that we're studying through 1 Timothy, and uh, we just finished... um, the, uh, the main body of chapter 3 uh, and talking about the qualifications of elders as well as of deacons. And I encourage you to go back and uh, look at those notes that are online or listen to those messages as uh, this morning's study kind of uh, is the capstone to those verses as well as all of chapter 2 and really the theme of, of 1 Timothy in general. And uh, let me read those, the verses to you this morning that we'll be looking at and then make a few introductory comments, and then uh, we'll look at the, uh, the verses in more detail. But 1 Timothy chapter 3, and beginning in verse 14, <clears throat> Paul concludes the chapter by saying this to Timothy, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Now, I've, like I said, I've titled the study, What's the Big Deal? And as we look at our culture today, um, we see a society which resists the idea of, of another person pushing upon them, you know, truths and beliefs, and they say, you know, what does it matter to you how I live? You know, your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, so, you know, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, and let's not, let's not make a, a big deal about this. And so the society around us, you know, pushes back against the idea that we have to submit ourselves under, under God, under his sovereignty, and under his control. Uh, we don't want to be responsible or accountable to a, to a God. So says the society. The society and, and so what's the big deal? Why do you care how I live? And perhaps at times as believers... When someone comes to us and maybe, you know, tries to lovingly reproach or incorrect us, we say, you know, what's the big deal? Let me do what I want to do, and you can live how you want to live. But even in our passage this morning, I think we'll understand that there is a big deal to how we conduct ourselves, especially in the context of the local church. And that's Paul's point here as he writes to Timothy and writes to the church in Ephesus at uh, at large here, speaking to the importance of properly conducting oneself in the house of God. 
believers are to properly conduct themselves in the church, since the church is a protector and support of the truth. And that's Paul's theme here this morning in verses 14 to 16. And these verses here are the heart of this pastoral epistle, which puts the instructions of the epistle into proper perspective. In uh, chapter 1, you might remember that Paul corrects the false doctrine, the false theology, that uh, in turn was producing bad conduct. There was arguments, there was dissensions, there was quarrels because of uh, the focus upon genealogies and other uh, trivial matters that had no importance to the furtherance of the gospel. It was only creating problems in the church and being a poor testimony to those outside of the church. And so Paul in chapter 1 begins with simply correcting their doctrine and, and reminding them of what the true gospel is. Not man-made rules, not legalism, but faith in Christ, a turning away from sin and a turning to Christ. And Paul even uses his own testimony of how God uh, transformed him and changed him and, uh, and gave him new life as an example of what it means to, to accept the true gospel message. In chapters uh, 2 and 3, then, we saw that Paul instructs the Ephesians on how they are to conduct themselves in the church. And these, uh, we could say these instructions broadly apply to all believers in the church in Ephesus as well as today. But, of course, we saw that there were specific instructions as well to certain groups of people, specifically to men in uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Paul uh, instructs men to pray uh, before the church with holy hands, that is, pure hearts, not without, uh, without sin, without, uh, without guilt in their hearts, but purified, sinless uh, uh, hearts, and that is how they are to pray. And then he gives a number of instructions to the women in the church, beginning in chapter 2, verse 9 through 15. And I won't go over that now. You can, again, listen to those messages about how women are to conduct themselves in the church. And then, finally, as we said just a moment ago, he gives instructions to church leadership in chapter 3, first to pastors or elders, and then uh, to deacons. And these instructions, as we said, generally apply to all believers, except maybe for a few exceptions. You know, not everyone has to be able to teach like pastors do, and not, uh, you know, men don't have to submit themselves uh, to women. It's the reverse. And so there are some exceptions to these instructions. But broadly speaking, uh, all of these instructions apply to everyone in the church. And so Paul then, on that basis, and having said all of this, then concludes in the end of chapter 3 that this conduct matters. It is a big deal how believers conduct themselves in the church of God. And he gives us two reasons uh, that we'll look at. Why does Paul give us uh, such careful attention to how Christians are to behave and, uh, and live their life in the context of the local church. And, you know, we might say, you know, what is the big deal, Paul? Why go on for such a long time about all of these commands and prohibitions and, you know, do's and don'ts? You know, why such, why such, a, uh, why such a high standard for elders and especially for deacons, you know, who just, you know, serve the church? Well, we talked about, you know, why that is important last time. But uh, again, in general, we may have this kind of question in our minds, and especially as an unbeliever, they would ask this kind of question, what's, what's the big deal, believers? Why, why, uh, why do you care so much how, how you live your life and how I live my life? 
Paul is going to tell us what the big deal is in verses 14 to 16 as, as we've read. And the first point I want to make this morning is this, that proper conduct is critical. It cannot wait. It cannot wait. Paul says in verse 14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. That's Paul's ideal situation is to, to come to them as soon as he can. But he says in verse 15 at the beginning, but if I am delayed, if this happens, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Now, if you remember back in the first uh, chapter of, of this letter, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus while he traveled on to Macedonia. We see this in verse 3. Other ministries seemingly demanded Paul's time and presence, and so as much as there were problems in the church in Ephesus, we know that uh, based on what he writes here to Timothy, Paul seemingly has to travel on because there's other pressing matters elsewhere. Certainly there was plenty to do in Ephesus, and so Paul left Timothy there to kind of clean up the mess and take care of the problems that were still existing in the church. And now uh, at the time that Paul is writing to Timothy, sometime later after he left and was in Macedonia, he expresses then his hope to return to Ephesus soon, but he acknowledges the fact that there's a real possibility that his travels may be delayed. And so he'd like to be there soon. He'd like to be there uh, to help Timothy and clear up and, uh, some of the doctrinal issues and, and, uh, and the conduct issues going on here. But he knows that there's a real possibility that he could be delayed. It may have been the timing that would delay him. You know, the weather would maybe not permit him to make the travels at the time. Or perhaps, uh, and maybe more possibly, there are other pressing ministries where Paul was. And so he simply could not leave those ministry responsibilities as much as the ones in Ephesus were just as important. You know, uh, we'd like to be everywhere at once if we could, dealing with all the problems or issues in life, but the fact is we're finite. We can only be at one place at a time, and so Paul, you know, says, I, I, have to, I may be delayed because of whatever situation, and so I'm going to write you because uh, there's things I want to tell you. And the fact of the matter is, is Timothy is there, and he's capable. It's not like, you know, Paul saw him as incapable, he was very capable to take care of these matters, but Paul had some instructions for him to help guide Timothy in how to deal with these problems. And so the possibility of being delayed is then what compels Paul to write these very instructions that we see in First Timothy, specifically in chapter 2 through chapter 3 up into where we're at here in verse 14. Now, we could ask, we, you know, we could think in our minds, well, couldn't he have just waited until he was able to come in person to tell Timothy what he was going to uh, be writing him? Well, that certainly could have taken place. Paul could have decided to do just that, save the ink, save the, uh, the paper, so to speak, and, uh, and the, uh, the, you know, the time of, of a letter trying to travel and make it there safely. Paul could have done that, but Paul thought that it was critical that they know what they were to be doing and how they were to be conducting themselves. And so proper conduct, then, we see is very critical, and it cannot wait. So Paul writes to Timothy. Paul thought it too pressing to wait until a later time when he could be there in person, not knowing exactly when that 
would be. And we know that Paul often desired to be with these people in person. There's kind of a, a, uh, an aura of being able to be there in person and really talk to them and explain, this is why it's so critical. This is what God wants for you versus, you know, having it come through a letter or, you know, in our day and age through a live stream. Um, rather, Paul says, I, I want to be here, but you know what? It's, it's too important to wait. And so I'm going to write you instead. And Paul's, uh, Paul's compelled to do this. And for this uh, very reason, he writes in verse 15, that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. The you uh, here in verse 15, the, you know, that you may know, uh, refers to Timothy. But these instructions uh, do not apply exclusively to Timothy. Timothy's character was certainly not the one in dis, disrepair here. Uh, he was a, a godly man. And so although these instructions are written to Timothy, I don't think it's at the exclusion of the rest of the church in Ephesus because if you look at uh, the context, the immediate context here, what, who is he speaking to in chapters 2 and 3? Not really Timothy. It was to the people in the church of Ephesus. It was to the elders or the prospective elders, or the prospective deacons. It was to the men and women of the church, not specifically to Timothy, although it certainly does still apply to him. And so when Paul writes that he is writing so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, that's not just Timothy and and no one else. That's all of the church. It's all of the believers in Ephesus, men and women alike. Paul writes for for their benefit and for their instruction. And so we see here from the very beginning of uh, verse 14 and 15 that, that uh, Paul writes because proper conduct is critical. It cannot wait. If you had some you know, important instruction you know, uh, that you know, perhaps your boss has for you and he says, well, you know, I know you need to get this job done, but you know, I'm going to wait another week to tell you how to do it. <laughs> And he'd think, no, I need, I need that now because I need to, in order to you know, be successful in that project and complete that task, I need the proper instructions. I need to know what to do and how to do it. And so in a similar kind of fashion, Paul says, you know, this cannot wait because this isn't just simply a, a work project. This is, this is God we're speaking about. It's God's word. It's, it's how you reflect God's image and, and how you reflect God in the church. And so Paul is compelled to write these instructions rather than wait. And Paul gives us two reasons why it's so important, so critical for the, the church to be operating in a way that is, that is glorifying to God and that uh, their character exemplifies Christ. And these two reasons are this. We belong, first, to the living God, and secondly, the church is a protector of the truth. And so we can say this, proper uh, conduct matters because we belong to the living God. And the church is a protector of truth. Look with me at uh, verse 15. Again, he says, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which, number one, is the church of the living God, and number two, I take it to mean, is the, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And so there's a twofold reason here that Paul gives us why uh, proper conduct matters in the church. The clause, uh, which is the church of the living God, the the pillar and ground of the truth, tells us the importance of the house of God and certainly the importance of properly conducting oneself and and thus why we ought to behave 
ourselves in a certain manner, a certain way. The church is not just another, uh, it's not another social club. It's not just uh, another, you know, community gathering, a community meet. It's not certainly just another business out there where we can make up the rules or as we go or do whatever we kind of, you know, feels right. And we see that in our culture today, you know, businesses compromising really their mission and their purpose to fit in and kind of, you know, uh, go along with the flow and, you know, make, make the kind of rules up, so to speak, as they go in order to gain more business or to avoid losing business. And, but that's not what the church is about. We have strict commands. We have strict prohibitions that we are to follow. The church is not just a corporation that does things like other businesses. The, the church belongs to the living God. We don't belong to, you know, uh, some man out there, some CEO. We don't belong or we don't submit ourselves to society and culture, the norms, or, or uh, necessarily all the rules of the government if they are in, uh, in, in contradiction to the word of God. And rather, we understand that our identity is in the living God as the church of God, not someone else, not a culture, no other entity, no being. The church does not get to determine how it runs itself and conducts itself. We have here certain divine imperatives for the church and how it is to do things. And so, you know, we have a church constitution we have bylaws, and we have things to help, you know, direct us and help us uh, conduct ourselves properly. But all of those things are grounded in not how we feel and how we want to do things, but they're grounded in the Word of God. It guides us in how we behave ourselves and how we conduct business here. And so even those things, which are, you know, extra-biblical kind of uh, guidelines, are grounded in the Word of God because we belong to the living God. We're not uh, interested in looking at the latest growth methods and strategies to gain popularity in the community like a business. You know, how can we gain more business? You know, what are the recent methods and strategies to, to see growth and financial profit? We cannot compromise faithfulness to the living God in order to make our beliefs more palatable. In our culture today, businesses compromise all the time to gain popularity or to, be, uh, to avoid becoming you know, canceled. We do not allow culture to dictate how we conduct ourselves. Rather, we should be looking to God and his word for instruction on how to operate, what we do, how we do it, how we behave, because our identity is in Christ and in the living God. We belong to God. We are his church. We are not the, uh, the Pope's church. We are not submissive, submitting to any other person. We are submitting to only the true living God. We see Paul here tell us and teach us that this is the church. The church is the house of God. We see this uh, in the middle of verse 15. The house of God. Uh, in the New Testament, especially the epistles, are, are, are littered with this, this idea of being the house of God. In fact, we looked at it earlier on um, 
where uh, in the section on pastors and elders, where it says that they are to properly lead their home, their uh, excuse me, lead their own home in order that they can lead the house of God properly. So, you know, a kind of a, an analogy or a, a lesson of, of smaller to greater, not as we said, not in value, but size. You know, if you can't run your own home well, which is made up of maybe four or five, six uh, individuals or whatever the case may be, how are you going to operate and run and lead a, a church, which, you know, has, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 100, 200 people? And so... Uh, we see often in the New Testament this idea or metaphor of the church being the house of God, God's house. In the Old Testament uh, time, the temple was, we could say, God's house, his dwelling place, as it, as it is on the earth. And today, uh, in this dispensation, in this day, uh, we don't have the temple of God, but we have the church. We have the church universal. Every believer makes up that universal church. But then we have specific locations called local churches where we gather we have uh, we have uh, you know uh, uh, people uh, bodies assemblies of believers that meet together to make up the the church a local church and here i think uh, when paul says the house of god uh, in one sense he may have the universal church in mind but i think because of the context again paul is specifically thinking of a a specific local church not just the church broadly, like all believers, you know, everywhere, all over the world. Rather, he's thinking about the, the church in Ephesus, you know, in, in this specific context. Practically, we are talking about our church family here in this day, right now. Just as it applied to the specific local church that Paul's writing to in Ephesus, so the same instructions apply to Fellowship Bible Church of Ann Arbor. The church is the house of the living God, as we said, the one and only true God. Christians do not worship a deity, a dead deity, or, uh, or you know, an image, a piece of wood, a rock. Remember uh, the situation in Ephesus, you know, the temples to uh, the goddess Diana, coming and worshiping a, a, a false god, a a, a, a dead deity, as it were, though not even a deity, but, a, but an imagination of the people. We don't worship that kind of a deity. We don't worship a rock or a piece of, of, of wood. We worship a God that is real and alive. And so that God then dictates and tells us how we are to operate. We don't make up the rules. We don't have manufactured traditions and rules that regulate how we, how we operate and how we worship this God. Rather, God being the supreme being, the living God, tells us what to do. It's not the other way around. Our God has expectations of holy conduct in his people, clearly laid out in the word of God, revealed to us, it's not hidden. It's here. We just have to read it. He expects his house, even the specific local assemblies on earth to be a place of worship for him, a place of honor, a place of respectability, a place of, of 
high esteem, holding him up in high esteem. The church is the living God's church. We are the church of the living God. Therefore, we submit ourselves to his rule. He is our master. We are his servants. The second reason that Paul tells us why it's so critical that we, uh, we conduct ourselves in the house of God in a specific manner is not just because we belong to the living God, and so therefore we submit to his, his ways and to his, his, his uh, commands, but secondly, the church is a protector of the truth. Look with me at the end of verse 15. Paul says this, uh, you know, you are to conduct yourselves in the house of God because, we could say, the church is the, li- uh, the church of the living God and also because the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the pillar and ground, or we could say support of the truth. Now, there's been a lot of uh, controversy over, you know, what, is, what does Paul mean by this? For one, these words aren't really used that often in the New Testament. In, sec- in fact, the second word, the word for ground, is, is not used in this kind of way any other place in the New Testament. And so that always makes it then more difficult to understand, you know, what does Paul mean because we don't have other passages to compare to and find clarity in. And so we have to wrestle over that. And to be honest, you know, we... Um, you know, we may find as we as we study God's word more uh, a better understanding of exactly what He means as we mature in the faith and study Scripture longer. Now, sometimes the verse is used to indicate a priority between uh, the church and the Word of God, you know, the truth, or to indicate that uh, whichever came first was the origin of of the other. And so, you know, uh, it's it's kind of the the chicken and egg problem. You know, is is the church the foundation? of the truth, or is the truth the foundation of, of the church? And, you know, we can get ourselves all kind of mixed up here of, 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 of what Paul means. And I think in some sense there's more simplicity to it than, than trying to figure it out in that kind of manner. If you, uh, if you cast the question about the church or Bible in this way, you know, what's, what came first or what originated the other, um, I think we'll always kind of land on a, a false conclusion. You know, if we if we say that the Bible came before the church, then, uh, you know, you would have to say that the Bible gave us the church. Well, the fact is the Bible, especially the New Testament, was being written already after the church existed, <laughs> for at least for some of the later epistles and, and for the Gospels. And so, you know, you can't say, well... Uh, you know, the Bible came first because that's not necessarily true, at least not the whole completed Bible. Not all the scripture was there. On the other hand, if you say that the church came first, then the church gave us the Bible, or at least the church authorized or authoritatively, authoritatively recognized the Bible's books, uh, canonicity, and then the, the Bible is dependent on the church, and we see that kind of error happen in the the Roman Catholic Church, where now they get to tell us, you know, what is, what is Scripture and what is not, you know, and, and they press upon their traditions and their, and their, uh, their thoughts, their, their man-made uh, imaginations and, and uh, their rules. And uh, Roman, as we just said, Roman Catholics, you know, believe in this and accept this, and it gives them then two, two authorities to live by, not just, the, not just Scripture, 
But then, oh, well, then there's also, you know, church tradition, the sacraments, the rituals. And so now we have two kind of opposing uh, authorities. And so even just trying to understand it in this way, my point is that it kind of always comes to a false conclusion, a, a false determination of what Paul means when we try to take this from an approach of, you know, what originated first. Chronologically, the Old Testament part of the Bible came first. We know that. We alluded to that. Then then the church started in Acts chapter 2. And then we see the rest of Scripture come along as the Holy Spirit guided men. Holy men of God were, were guided and uh, instructed. And they then wrote the very words of God and inscripturated them. The church was started before the New Testament was written, but not before revelation occurred upon which the church was founded. All of Christ's teaching led up to the, the birth of the church, and, and uh, we kind of talked about this a little bit um, back during our evangelism series where, you know, we, I think we make too much of a dichotomy between the Gospels and, and then the rest of the growth of the church. Obviously, there is a, a dividing factor here. We have Christ's death and resurrection and, and the birth of the church, but all of, all of the teachings in the Gospels aren't, you know, it's not like they're no longer relevant. They're, they're, they're the, they're the founda- foundational teachings by which then the apostles went out. I mean, what, what other teaching did they go out by and begin to, to declare uh, you know, Christ's death and his resurrection and, and all the teachings that, that God had given them? Well, n- none other than that. And, of course, the Old Testament scriptures as well, as it informed, informed their thinking and teaching. But, um, and so we hold, we hold that in, in high regard, that, that which is... Uh, taught about in the, in the Gospels. The revelation was given by Jesus and by the work of the Holy Spirit and the apostles, and it, and, it, and it is founded upon Jesus Christ. The reality is that the church did not give us the Bible, nor did the church give us the New Testament part of the Bible, nor did the Bible give us the church, per se. Christ gave us all of this. He is the originator of God's word. He is the foundation of the church. He is the cornerstone. The very truth that he is, he is the living God. It's upon this truth that the church exists. He is the builder of the church. He started it through the giving of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts in chapter 2. The Bible also came by the Holy Spirit as well, second, a third person of the Trinity, through the miracle of, of, of inspiration in which God then superintended the authors of Scripture to write the Bible without error in all its parts and its original manuscripts. Therefore, we conclude that the living God is the one who gave us the Word of God and the church. And of course, then, by implication, and as we study out Scripture, the Bible then gives us the rules for a church today. It guides us. It directs us. So that uh, if you know, if we were, if we were to, uh, you know, be apart from any other church, you know, perhaps you're out in in the boondocks, out somewhere without any church in existence, you could 
understand the truth through the word of God. And you could, if you, know, you had an assembly of other people with you, you could preach the gospel to them, and you could begin a church by the very use of God's word and teaching and instructing and evangelizing and discipling. We don't, need, uh, we don't need the Roman Catholic Church or a pope to come in and say, all right, now that you, know, you have the Bible, let, us, let me tell you how then to start a church. No, we have the, the authoritative word of God which instructs us and guides us so that we can properly conduct ourselves in a church and properly uh, develop and, and run a church and operate according to the word of God. Now, when together, these ideas here, looking back at verse 15, the pillar and ground of truth where we, where we started this discussion, could either, either dis, uh, suggest two distinct ideas. So, you know, Paul's saying it's the pillar and also the ground of the truth, or perhaps he's thinking of it, a, of it, thinking of it as a kind of single combined idea. So it's two synonymous almost words here linked together, and he's saying, you know, you're, you're the pillar and ground of the truth. I take personally the, the latter that Paul is kind of restating uh, this, the same idea. It is the pillar, the ground, is what he's saying. It's, it's the pillar, it's the ground of the truth, rather than two distinct ideas. That pictures then the church as holding high the truth and supporting it in the sense of, of being an advocate for the truth in the world. And I can't help but think that Paul, you know, when he says this, he has in mind, you know, the great temple in Ephesus, these, these magnificent pillars that were holding up in, for them this, uh, this ideology and this false doctrine and false teaching, and it, re, it, uh, it resembled all that they believed in a very, a very concrete matter, or manner. You know, there it is. You can't get past it. This is, this is what they believe in. Look at, look at it, you know, with your eyes. And so in that kind of way then, in a, me- a metaphorical way then, Paul is saying the doctrine of, of Christ crucified and, and uh, risen again, the doctrine of, of truth is upheld, it is manifested, it is advocate, advocated for by the church. They are those pillars. They are that pillar. They are that, that support for the truth. The church is supposed to uphold the word of God in its practice and proclamation. When we, when we begin to depart from it, like the church in Ephesus did, it no longer supports that. It begins to crumble. And on a personal and individual level, it, it, it results in shipwrecked faith. And so as we begin to think about this, and as Paul instructs the, the church in Ephesus, he's trying to help them understand that Proper conduct matters. It is critical, not just on an individual level, but on, on a corporate manner, on a corporate level, because the church, the living, the church of the living God is, is an advocate for the church, or for, for the truth. It is the support of truth, and if, and if the church isn't operating in that way, if it's neglecting that responsibility, well, then we see a, uh, a deterioration of, of the truth being being uh, kind of pushed out there, demonstrated, manifested to the world. We, we know this through the very fact that you know, we see in the latter times when, when Christ comes, raptures his church, what happens to the world? It quickly spirals out of control. Now, that's not to say that truth no longer exists. 
course it does. It, the truth isn't dependent upon the church being existing here on the earth because, you know, we know that Christ is going to take the church away, and yet truth still remains, and there's actually people who are going to believe into that truth and become believers, be saved. But, but there is a, a quick deterioration of morals, a quick deterioration because the church no longer is there advocating and, and, and holding up the very word of God and saying, this is, this is what God demands of you, even you, unbeliever especially those in the church, though, too. Note, then, that the church is, is not synonymous with truth. There, there are two distinct ideas here. Rather, the church does something for the truth. It upholds it. It supports it. As we just said, if the church were to disappear, that would not change the truth one bit because, well, the truth existed before the church did, right? All through the Old Testament, and into Christ's early ministry, the truth was there. It was declared. It was proclaimed. It was upheld by individuals and was supposed to be upheld by the nation of Israel. But, of course, they had their failings like we, we do as well. So it doesn't, it's not as if it's the same thing. It's distinct. And rather, the church plays a supporting role in upholding it and proclaiming it. And when we fail to do that, not just in word, but notice, it's indeed. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about just upholding it like going out there and sharing the gospel with your, with your lips and your mouth. That's, that's critical. But Paul's saying the, the, uh, the, the, the critical aspect here is that your conduct upholds the truth. No one's going to listen to a hypocrite who says one thing, yet they look at the church and scratch their head and says it. They don't seem to be abiding by the same thing they, they say they believe in. And so our conduct matters. We're running out of time here this morning, so we'll have to pick up uh, next time in, in, verse, uh, in verse 16, where Paul then uh, tells us this, that proper conduct is motiva- motivated by the greatness of the message. That will be our third point next time when we meet in verse 16, that proper conduct is motivated by the greatness of the message. Let's close in a word of prayer here this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, may it, as Paul has purposed, as God through Paul has purposed, that we conduct ourselves in a way that demonstrates that we belong to the living God and that we understand and we, the criticalness of, of being that pillar and ground for the truth. We are your agent in this day and age. We are your means of upholding that. You could do it alone. You don't need us, but you have chosen to use us, and may we take that responsibility with, with, uh, Lord, with a high regard and with fear and trembling, or that our conduct matters. And it matters now. We are to, to follow you every day, starting this minute, this hour. Lord, help us to, to follow you and, obedience. In Christ's name, amen.